All right, this morning, just rolling right along. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Anybody else getting the pollen thing going here? Dana, my Zyrtex is working, though, so good recommendation. Thank you very much. Saw her over it the other day. and Anyway, so this morning we find ourselves in the middle of the Easter season. Three weeks removed from Easter Sunday. we got three weeks to go to Pentecost Sunday. That's the 50 days of the Easter season. I stress that not one Sunday. It's not a one-and-done deal. It's 50 days to celebrate. So here we are in the middle of it. Now, it sounds kind of silly to say this, but uh, during the Easter season... We celebrate the life of Jesus, um, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his victory over, the, over death in the grave. I say that sounds kind of silly because isn't that what we should be talking about every Sunday? A wise mentor of mine way back in the day said that every Sunday should be a mini celebration of Easter. And I think we do a pretty good job of that here, remembering who Jesus is. Now one of the aspects that we cover, you know, the, the church has seasons for a reason. Um, we have seasons for a reason, right? And so the church has seasons for a reason. This 50 days of Easter um, is uh, for us to focus on a couple of different things. One of the aspects that we focus on is the times that Jesus appeared to his followers, sometimes his disciples, sometimes other people. We look at the times that he appeared to his followers, and we talk about why he showed up when he did and what was accomplished then and how that affects our lives now. How does that affect who we are and what we believe and the way we carry ourselves? So just like he, uh, you know, before he ascended into heaven, um, we, we want to look at some of those moments. We want to we kind of sink our teeth into a couple of those. So now we'll take a closer look at the book of John this morning. I read from the Gospel of John this morning. Um, and we're going to look and see how, how that moment in history not only applied to the disciples who were there in the boat, but also to the disciples that are sitting here in these pews and the disciples that are in the world today. We're going to focus on one of those um, encounters. Before I show you um, 21, chapter 21, John 21 that we just read from, um, I want to show you um, John 20, the end of John 20. Because if you were just kind of reading the Bible for the first time, um, and you didn't have the whole thing in your hand, you would look at the end of John 20, you would think, well, this sounds like a conclusion to me. Look at John 20, this is 30 and 31. It says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. And this book means this book, not just John. Uh, But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice that it says continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power in his name. Now, if you were Leonard Bernstein writing West Side Story, or if you were John Williams um, who wrote the soundtrack to Star Wars and Harry Potter, if you were one of those guys writing this, we would be crescendoing the music here. We'd be at the end, and the credits would start rolling, right? Except that we're not quite at the end here. So we're going on to chapter 1 after this. So this sounds like a conclusion to me. So I look at it more like a symphony. I'm going to look at well, chapter 20 as kind of the conclusion, and then chapter 21 is kind of the coda. Because we've got some unfinished business here. We got some stuff that we still have to talk about, so we should really look at this. It's more of more than just like a PS in a letter. Now we got some stuff that we've got to resolve here. We got some things that we have to set down. So chapter twenty-one isn't just kind of tacked on to uh, the book of John. It must be there for a reason and a purpose. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there in the first place. So we should really take a look at it, examine it, see what it's there for, and then talk about how again it applies to our lives. So I think I can sum up chapter twenty-one. The book of John, chapter 21, in one word. And that word is Peter. Now, there's a couple of different aspects that goes along with that, but it's about Peter. 
And you're going to find out this morning that you have some similarities with Peter. You have a lot of things in common with the way Peter thinks and the way he goes about life and the way he goes about his relationship with God and his relationship with Christ the Messiah. So, all right, he has a, Peter has a dominant role in the Gospels. Right? And, but then he is kind of, um, I don't know, noticeably absent from the resurrection narratives. Um, He's at the tomb. He runs to the tomb with John. I mean, he's prominent there. But he's just kind of a sidebar in the other places where Jesus comes back and appears to him, appears to the disciples. So the last time we really see Peter functioning is when he's standing next to a fire Thursday night denying Jesus. That's kind of the last moment that we see him. He runs to the tomb and we see a couple of other parenthetical things. But he's denying Jesus. Now, I want to talk about that for a second. I want to talk about Peter denying Jesus and what that really means. And again, how that applies to the way we think and the way we carry ourselves, the way we act. So instead of talking about the actual fire, I'm going to talk about, show you where Jesus talks about it, that he tells Peter that this is going to happen. One of those places is in Mark. I like to split up Gospels and talk with different writers. Mark 14, verse 30 says this. Jesus said to him, said to Peter, He said, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Jesus uses a very unique word here with that word deny. Deny has almost as much to do with yourself as it does for somebody else. Deny really means this, means to forget oneself. To forget oneself, to lose sight of oneself or one's interests. So when we start thinking about it like that, we start picturing Peter standing by that fire that night, that Thursday night, denying Jesus. Peter's forgetting himself. He's forgetting his identity in Christ. He's forgetting who he is. He's forgetting his interests. He's forgetting his goals. It's more about ourselves than it is about our relationship with Christ. It's all about our relationship with Christ, but it's how we go about it. So Peter, like I said, did all of those things. He forgot himself. He lost sight. He lost uh, the, his in, the, the goals, his interests, sight of his interests. So now I want to look at that encounter on the beach that we just read a snippet about. We're going to dig into it a little bit further. We're going to see what we can learn from that historical account. We can see how we can put ourselves into that narrative. We're going to see about how, what we can learn about ourselves from, like I said, Peter's reaction, the other disciples' reaction, and Jesus' response to them, and Jesus' response to you. So we're going to look at this from three different aspects, three different ways of looking at that, break it out into three different ways, how Jesus, how Jesus breaks into our lives. The first thing that Jesus did for the disciples is that he redirected them. So he di- redirects the disciples. 21, 1 and 2. It says, later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. And this is how it happened. This is how it went down. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. So, I don't know, my mind goes all kinds of different places when I'm reading the Bible. And when I read this, my mind goes to a couple of different places. One of them, uh, look, at, look at how it's, how it's right here. we got Simon Peter, we're literally middle naming him. Thomas, get his nickname. Nathaniel, shout out to his hometown. Sons of Zebedee, shout out to their heritage. And then, oh yeah, there were two other guys. You guys remember the theme to Gilligan's Island? Let's look at the, this. This is the original theme to Gilligan's Island. It's just a minute, real here. Just listen to this part. Cue the music. 
just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. The mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. Started getting rough, the tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the middle would be lost. The middle would be lost. The ship's aground on the shore of this uncharted desert isle with Gilligan, the skipper, too. The millionaire and his wife, the movie star. Listen to this part. And the rest. Right? Oh, there are some other people there too. I'm telling you, this stuff kind of stuff brings credibility to the Bible. This brings credibility. If you were worried about credibility and people reading it, you would certainly name those other disciples. You would describe exactly who they were the same way it was going on. But if you ever doubt that the Bible is written by real people, there's some proof of it right now. So, all right. Um, if uh, Simon Peter says, Peter says, I'm going fishing in verse 3. Now, that's what Peter did before Jesus. Before he had an encounter with Jesus, before he spent that time with Jesus. And the others say, we're going to go too. Uh, see, what, what had happened was this. Um, they were with Jesus for all those years. And they saw him do these amazing things. They were convinced 100% that he was the Messiah. Until they weren't convinced 100% that he was the Messiah. Because he died on the cross while some of them stood there watching this. Watch this guy die. The Messiah, the chosen one of God, the one that was going to set everything right. Then to add to the confusion, three days later, he rose from the dead and then he appeared to them in some miraculous ways. They're all shut up in this room, doors and windows are all shut locked, and all of a sudden, boom, Jesus is standing there with them. So they're convinced again that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's risen, that everything he said was true. But then there was this pause that Jesus wasn't on the scene for a while, and Peter got impatient. He thought, And rightly so. I mean, we can understand this, hopefully. Peter thought, well, this is it. Jesus showed up a couple of times, and and now he's not. And now we got to figure out what our new normal is going to be. we got to figure out what we're going to be doing now and how things are going to look now. So he lost himself, right? He got misdirected in a word. Um, He lost sight of himself, his goals, his interests, all that denying thing we talked about a second ago. And worse yet, Peter's starting to drag some of these other people down with him. Right? Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, Thomas, those other two guys, right? So they got, they're, out there, they're out there doing their thing, right? And like I said, Peter's dragging these other people with him, bringing, him, bringing them to where he wants to be. But then, but then God, but then God shows up on this beach, right? And they don't recognize that it's Jesus. This isn't a very trans, good translation. They just didn't recognize him. It's not that they didn't get a good look at him. It's not that they couldn't really focus. No, they just didn't recognize him. And Jesus did that a lot. They just didn't know it was him. And then a good, accurate translation of the Greek um, is this one in, in chapter uh, 21, verse 5. Jesus says this to them. He said, you don't have any fish, do you? I mean, it's not like, how's the fishing going? It's not like, did you catch any? He said, hey, you don't have any fish, do you? And it's almost mocking in a way. And the only answer that they could say to the question, the way this question is phrased in the Greek, is no. No, we don't have any fish, they answered. 
So Jesus says in verse 6, throw your net over the other, on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they did, right? They couldn't haul in all of us. So how ridiculous did that have to sound? We've been fishing all night, and some dude standing on the beach says, and, and now he, Jesus actually addresses them. He, he says the word children. So he's obviously a rabbi or some sort of official to say that to, to the people out in this boat. Baying him, basically, right? But they can't be thinking that, right? You know, how ridiculous. Throw it over the other side of the boat. Get out here, I'll throw you over the other side of the boat, right? What, so maybe sarcastically, almost in spite, Peter says something like, hey, you two other guys, you know, who are those two other guys? You two other guys, throw a net over the other side of the boat. So they throw the net over the other side of the boat. And it gets so full that they can't haul it in. Right? They can't haul it in because there's so, there's so many fish. It's, the boat starts to list over there a little bit. All at once now, the disciples are redirected to getting back on track, to getting back on track to Jesus. Uh, they realize that it's Jesus. Okay, so here's where Peter starts to take the forefront again. Peter puts on his tunic, puts on his dress because it's, um, or dresses because it says he's stripped for work. That's an interesting word in the New Testament, by the way. Only shows up a couple of times. They realize that it's Peter. Peter says it's stripped for work. He puts on some clothes, puts on his tunic so he's respectable. And he jumps in, he starts swimming back, right? Leaving Thomas, James, and the, and the rest to, uh, to deal with uh, hauling that net in, right? And so now, I don't know if you can outswim a boat, especially if you're, most people take clothes off to go swimming. Peter puts clothes on to go swimming, so here he is, and it says that they're 100 yards out. I wouldn't try to swim 100 yards unless I was trying to save my life with a life jacket and a couple of uh, things. With me. So here's Peter swimming. Got the, you know, maybe the guys are like this. Hey, hey, hey Peter, you want to just get back in the boat here? Because uh, we're, we're almost ashore, and you're starting to look a little tired. But, but they reach the shore, right? So now Jesus has redirected them back to himself. And now Jesus recharges them. Jesus brings them back. He recharges them. Peter starts swimming for the shore. Um, like I said, he puts clothes on. That's just absolutely crazy. But when they get there, Jesus has breakfast waiting for them already. He's got some fish and he's got some bread sitting there on this fire. Where did he get the fish? Who knows? I mean, he's Jesus. We've heard some stories about loaves and fishes before, right? That Jesus used to uh, do some other miraculous things. But then Jesus says, now, and there's some detail in here that we really need to pay some attention to. Um, Jesus says, um, go get to Peter. He says, go get some of the fish that you just caught. You know, I remember when I said, throw the net on the other side of the boat and you got all those fish. He said, yeah, go, go, go get some of those fish. Okay, time out here. It says, I didn't put the scripture up here, but it says that they caught 153 fish. Big ones. Anybody into numerology here? Significance in numbers? Do we know what the significance of this 153 is? A lot of people put, some, put a lot of time into this. You know what we found? Absolutely nothing. This is a detail that John got, puts in. I think he's bragging a little bit, but maybe to show the significance of how many fish were in there, how much weight was in there, and the nets break. So now, notice the contrast here, though. <clears throat> notice the contrast in this chapter between what, what Peter is feeling, what Peter feels like he needs to prove, how he needs to prove himself to Jesus. Um, he jumps into the water, clothes and all, swims for it. Um, doesn't ask, you know, he doesn't ask about hauling in the net. He just, he just goes, when Jesus says, excuse me, <clears throat> when Jesus says, go get some of those fish you caught, Peter himself goes down to the shore, grabs the net, and pulls it. He doesn't say, hey, you two other guys, come and help me. No, he pulls it in himself. 
Peter is working. He's doing, he's, he's, he's trying to prove himself back to Jesus again. On the other side, though, we have Jesus, who has prepared everything for Peter and simply invited him back into that relationship with him. He's inviting him to recharge himself, to revive himself, to refresh um, themselves on what Jesus is offering them. And that's what he's offering to us. That's what he says to you. I want to redirect you wherever you're going, whatever you're looking at, whatever you're chasing, I want to redirect you back to me. And then when you come back to me, I'm going to recharge you. I'm going to refresh you. I'm going to revive you with what I am offering to you. Not about what you're doing. So for Peter and for many people today, that relationship with God is about working, about trying to prove himself or yourself as the best. Peter said straight to Jesus' face, even if all these other losers deny you, I will not deny you. And then until he did, right? And if everyone else does, he said, you know, I'm, I'm swimming, I'm hauling, I'm trying to, trying to win favor with you again. To show you that I can do these things. And Jesus is like, I don't even actually need those fish. Everything that you need is right here already. I've already prepared a table for you, Peter. I've already done it for you. I just need you to come in and accept it and and do it. So Peter, at this point, like many people today, got basically half the gospel message. This wasn't the first time that Jesus told him to cast your net on the other side. When Jesus was calling Peter, he said, cast your net on the other side. The same thing happened. That's how John recognized it so quickly. The first time it happened, Peter recognized the glory of God. And he said, he tried to to back off from it, right? He said to Jesus, depart from me. I am a sinful man. But this time... Now, seeing the glory of God, Peter is running to Jesus. He's drawn to Jesus, drawing close to Jesus. But Peter, like many people today, um, still haven't found rest in that gospel message. Peter knows God loves him. He wants to be close to God. But he still thinks he has to prove himself to God. So he's always working for it. He's always doing for it. Peter and and many other people today think that your performance is the basis of your acceptance by Jesus. Think that your performance is the basis of what Jesus' acceptance is based on. But the gospel says that Jesus has given you his acceptance as a gift. That it's already there. So Jesus gives them that invitation. Come and have breakfast. So now Jesus has redirected them from fishing, whatever that vocation is, back to himself. He's redirected them back to to himself. He's recharged them. He's refreshed them. John 21, 15, and this is Peter in particular. It says, After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. So much going on in this one verse. But the one word I want to focus on is that word love. 
Jesus says, do you love me more than these? And Jesus uses a particular word in, in the Greek, um, this, the vocabulary that he's using, the word choice, we need to take a closer look at. Jesus uses the word agape. He asks John, do you agape me? Now there's, there's basically six words in the Greek for the word love. We've got one in English, but um, having more than one word for love in a language isn't unique to Greek. There's three that, they're, that are basically used. Agape means unconditional love. It means I'll love you no matter what happens. That's what Jesus asks Peter. Me unconditionally. Peter is still staring straight in the face of standing around that fire with a couple of teenage girls that said, Hey, aren't you one of them? He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. So Peter answers Jesus. He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, but Peter uses a different word for love. He uses the Greek word phileo, which means a friendship, or to the best of my ability. Um, Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love because it's based on that Greek word phileo. So he does that. He asks him, do you love me? And he says, no, uh, you know, he can't answer that I love you unconditionally because you already know that I don't. So I'm not going to lie to you. Verse 16, it's like second verse, same as the first. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, of, uh, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? Yes, Lord, said, you know I phileo you. Same thing in verse 16. Jesus says, is it unconditional, your love? Peter says, with all honesty, I love you as much as I am able to, to the best of my ability. And this is where, now, where um, Jesus really breaks Peter down and where we should be feeling it, too. So the first part of verse 17 says, a third time. Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of me. Well, Jesus changes the script now, changes the narrative. He doesn't say, do you agape love me here? He says, do you phileo love me? Do you love me to the best of your ability? And this is where Peter starts to understand that it's not about him. It's about Jesus. When we think about our acceptance from Jesus about us. We think about what we've done, what we can do, what we shouldn't, but Jesus says it's all about Jesus, that acceptance, because we don't have that ability. The second half of verse 17 that says straight up Peter was hurt. That word means grieved, distressed. Hurt that Jesus asked the question like he did. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You told me what I was going to do before I even did it. You know that I phileo you. So in verse 17, Jesus brings it down to our level. He meets us where we are. He says, I know where you are. Do you know where you are? Do you understand that the gospel message is all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not about us. 
It's about us coming and accepting that meal and accepting what he's offering us. And it's about us doing what he says I've already done for you, living into what he's already done for us. Not to belittle anybody, Jesus isn't doing that, but to meet us where we are. Jesus says, this is where you are, so this is where I'm coming in. And you know, the the Word of God says that that the Word is active and alive. It's living, sharper than a two-edged sword. So at the beginning of this, I told you how John 20 is kind of the end of the book of John, except it isn't. Because Jesus brings Peter back in. He restores Peter. He redirects him. He revives him. He restores him back to where he was. Helps him to understand where his relationship The word of the Lord is active and alive. Why is it still active and alive? Because just like Peter had to be restored in chapter 21, the gospel couldn't end without that being restored, without Peter accepting it like that. The gospel can't end until the resurrection of Christ has actually been applied to your life. That's where the gospel, that's where the rubber meets the road. When we can apply the resurrection, what Jesus has done for us, and accept that and apply it to our lives, that's when the gospel becomes complete. No challenge this morning, just the facts, ma'am. Can I get an amen? All right, let's stand, please.